right, well, we're going to be in John chapter 6. Sometimes on Mother's Day, we preach about mothers. Today is not one of those days. We will preach about John chapter 6, verse 22 and following. And if you're just joining us, John is a photo album given by the God of the Bible to help us see that Jesus was indeed all that he claimed to be. He was indeed God, that he did wonderful miracles, that he was the greatest teacher of truth that ever lived, and that he was truth himself. And as we are flipping through this photo album, we're encountering that same truth of the divinity of Jesus over and over and over. Tonight will be no exception, but there is some bonus content that goes with that further underscoring of that truth that is worthy of our investigation as well. So let's pick it up right here in verse 22. It says this, on the next day, so this is right after what we looked at last week and the week before, the crowd, so this is the 10 to 20,000, 5,000 men, but plus all their women and children that were associated with them, that crowd re that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and Jesus had not entered the boat with the disciples. So there's a reference to what we saw last week. But the disciples had gone on away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place that they had eaten the bread that the Lord, and after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So here's the picture that we need to have in our minds. Last week, we saw Jesus and the disciples exit stage left, kind of a Beatles, Rolling Stones exit. And they now have decided, hey, these guys aren't here. And they just gave us all this food and this miraculous thing happened. We better go check it out and see if we can take this show on the road. So they literally hop in their own boats and head across looking for Jesus. Verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. So Jesus, in his typical fashion, speaks directly to their hearts, and he really lays it bare. And the first principle is just as it appears that some people seek Jesus only for his practical provision. One commentator said it like this, they were not moved by full hearts, but by full bellies. And so what they were looking for was another meal, another trip through the Jesus drive-thru, another, hey, do this for us and feed us. And even though this is clearly a problem that they had, and you can tell it was a problem by the way Jesus addressed it, this is a time-honored problem. In fact, this could have been written today just as easy as it was written 2,000 years ago. Think about the historical moment that we are in. How the gospel often gets communicated. That Jesus basically exists to fulfill all of our hopes and dreams and wishes. That you come to him, he will make you healthy, wealthy, and wise. Your business will prosper. Your wife will be, as they used to say, smoking hot. Then on top of that, all kinds of other great things will happen, and it might as well just have been just what was happening in this day. Now, is that Jesus' problem? Absolutely not.
But is there a problem with people and how we sometimes present and communicate the gospel? You better believe it. So we need to take Jesus at his own rebuke here. He's not necessarily rebuking us. He's clearly rebuking them. But we need to learn from their rebuke and not fall into this same pitfall. We don't need to become obsessed with the gifts and forget the giver. Now, we're not going to be obsessed with loaves and fishes like they were. Most of us, if you go home, I'm guessing you've probably got plenty of food. You may have too much food. So food is not going to be your temptation. It's not going to be your Jesus replacement. But it might be other things. And as I was thinking about this today, and we were driving around in this area today, just looking around, so much in this zip code and this set of zip codes, it is marketed to us as luxury, as destination, come here, you deserve this, all this kind of stuff. Is that necessarily wrong in and of itself? No, of course not. There's nothing wrong with nice stuff and having nice stuff. But if we somehow begin to frame the gospel that God is only good to us if he gives us luxury whatever, then we're just like these folks. Then we would be worshiping God, not with, from a full heart, but simply because we want a full belly. So part of the tension that we have to live in in this area is being thankful for all the gifts that he's given us, but not replacing the worship of the giver with the worship of the gifts. That's a tension that has to be managed. It's a tension that is not going to easily get resolved. It's a constant awareness of the joy and the danger of being where we are. Because we don't want to be these people. We don't want to fall into the same pitfall that we see so many do. And then also be in the trouble that some of these people find themselves in. You think about this in our day. You know people who think like this. When the gravy train of God runs out, what happens? They run out too. Well, he didn't answer my prayer. He didn't do anything for me. Stop going to church. Stop following Jesus. And we don't want to do that. We don't want them to do that. We want to make sure that we understand the gospel for what it is and understand a relationship with God for what it is and keep the main thing the main thing. Not get obsessed with the proverbial loaves and fishes, but be obsessed with the miracle worker behind them all. Now, Jesus gives them and us some clear teaching on how to avoid that. Look at verse 27. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Now, what Jesus is doing here is several different things. He's communicating something about himself. He's also uh, helping them if they had ears to hear it. But let's work backwards on this. He is speaking about the authentication that God has placed upon him in his ministry. When he says seal, uh, you, you know what he's talking about here. It's kind of a, a wax seal that is placed on, if you've seen any Lord of the Rings movie or any King Arthur movie or any movie from the setting in this time period, there's the wax and then they take the ring and, psh, and they give it to some guy who runs off under the peril of death to take this message to whoever and whatever. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here. Is he's saying that God, the Father, has put this seal of authenticity on me and my ministry. 
And so I'm qualified to tell you what I'm telling you. And what is it that he's telling them? He's saying, you're obsessed with this food that's going to go away. It was important. It was good. I gave it to you. But you're already hungry again, right? That's why you came over here. That is perishing. But there's a different kind of food that leads to eternal life that only I can give you. And I have the authority to do it. And of course, in verse 28, they're down with that. Look at that. It says, then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? But they've already missed the point yet again. Because what they are thinking here is, what do I do to get this food? What do I do to be saved? What am I going to do to work myself into God's favor? That's how they're thinking about it. But then Jesus answers again in verse 29 to clean up the mess that they've just made. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So second principle, the work that Jesus requires is to believe in him. That's what he's saying. He's saying you can't work your way to heaven. You can't work your way into ultimate spiritual satisfaction. You have to let me do the work for you, and then your work is to believe in me. Now, I think all of us, at least most of us in this room, would say yes and amen to that. But as we have been talking about in recent weeks and months, there are so many in this area, that's not really what they believe. Because even though it might even fall under a Christianish umbrella, there are many splintered denominations that have Jesus plus something as their actual belief, or at least their functional belief. And so part of what we have to always go back to here is that the works that we are depending upon for salvation are not ours, but Christ's alone. Our work is to believe in him and his work. Now, the objection that that raises is, well, Dustin, are you saying that works don't matter? No, of course not. But what I am saying to you is our works cannot save us. And so it's important where we put works in the chain. If they are on the front end that justify us before God, that's works righteousness. Historians would call that heresy. You're working your way to heaven. You're not going to get there. But if you put them in the chain after, after you meet Jesus, that your works flow from the work of believing in Jesus and the works that he's done on our behalf, now we have biblical Christianity. But you got to put them in the right place. Put them over here. Leads to hell, put them over here, we're headed toward heaven. But the work is to believe in Christ. So let me speak to this very practically here. If you are here and your plan to be saved is to try to do your best and hope that God craves on a curve, let me gently but clearly say to you that is not the gospel. Your only hope is the work of Jesus Christ counted on your account because all of our works, the Bible says, are as filthy rags. The best we can do is still not good enough. The way I've heard this illustrated, and it, it, it stuck with me all these years, is it's kind of like the Grand Canyon. On one side, you have God and his holiness. On the other side, you have 
all of us except Jesus. So it's not like good people and bad people in the world. It's all bad people and one good person, Jesus, right? That's the truth. And us trying to work our way to heaven is basically like trying to build a little wooden bridge out of creaky two-by-fours that are rotten, trying to get all the way across the Grand Canyon. It's not going to work because the boards that we would use, we could never get there and they won't hold us up. So the way that we get there is we have to trust in Christ. The work that Jesus requires is to believe in him. That's where it starts. And you might say, okay, but so what does that mean? I would say it kind of like this. Let's hope this works. See this pulpit right here, right? It's sturdy. I'm not going to climb on top of it, by the way, if anybody's really wondering what I'm about to do. It is leaning our full weight on top of this, trusting that it will hold us up. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. It's to go all in on his perfect life, his substitute's death, his glorious resurrection. That's what it means, to lean on him. That's the work that he's saying that they need to do. And sadly, at this point, they don't do it. In fact, they pivot to a totally different distraction. Jesus tells them exactly what they need to do, and watch what happens. Because we would be wise to not do what they do. Because God could be speaking to some of us right now and saying, you need to lean fully on the work of Christ, and you're being tempted to be distracted as well. Look at this in verse 30. It says, so they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, what are we talking about here? So what they are referring to is a story from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 16. It's a very long story, but I'll try to make it very brief. Basically, the children of Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament, made a huge mess of things, wander around for about 40 years, starving to death, and God provides them generously, graciously, miraculous manna, this bread-like substance that uh, actually in Hebrew, it's kind of funny, it's called whatchamacallit, or what is it, I think is the word that they use. They end up calling it manna, and they eat, and it's this miraculous miracle that God used Moses to do, and it fed them for 40 years, okay? And so that was a huge deal in their history. It was a huge deal in their spiritual uh, lineage, if you will. And so what they're basically saying here is Jesus... That little loaves and fish thing you did the other day, that was cool, but we want to see you do the big thing now. I mean, yeah, thanks, but we want to see you really do something amazing. And so that's what they were looking for. And and I think in a couple of different ways, this is really sad. Because he had just done this great miracle in their midst. They had literally seen it, literally tasted it, literally touched it, literally eaten it, and they still look at Jesus square in the face and say, that's not enough. That's sad. The ingratitude, the spiritual dullness, and I think a subtle caution for us can be taken from this too. Because there's not one of us us in this room that cannot be 
prone to similar spiritual forgetfulness. I was thinking about that this week in my own life. I've seen God do so many miraculous things. I lost count. But still, when something happens, if it's in one, two, three, four different areas, I will get really panicked and paranoid as if I'd never seen any of that. I hate that. But that's reality. And as I was reading this passage this week, I was like, I do not want to be these people. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief in this area. Help me remember the miracle that you just did yesterday and not be trying to put you to the test to do another one tomorrow. So then I would believe. And here's the deal. I bet I'm not the only one with that tendency. You don't have to tell me because I know it's true. But all of us need to be aware of that temptation. We wouldn't do that on purpose, but it happens. That, that's part of this remaining sin that we all have to deal with, that we have a type of spiritual amnesia that just comes out of nowhere and can easily forget what God has done. So I think we need to take a page out of their playbook and rip it out and make a paper airplane and get rid of it. We need to be aware of this to not fall into that hole. And then on top of that, Jesus actually begins to speak to why this is the case in the first place. Now, he's going to get to the backstory in just a minute, but he wants to clean this up just a little bit <clears throat> before he gets there. Look at verse 32. He says, truly, truly, I say to you. So that's like a Jesusism to say, pay attention. This is really important. So truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. So Jesus is speaking figuratively here, okay? He's cleaning up their theology, and he's saying, you're thinking this was all about Moses the magic man that came out and did all this, but really, you're wrong. It was the God behind Moses all along. <coughs> and then on top of that, he is giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Now, what is it that Jesus is saying? Jesus is telling them that he is the bread. That there was this manna that points to the ultimate man. And he is that man. That's what he says in verse 35, makes it crystal clear. I said to them, or Jesus said to them, <coughs> I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So point three is this. Jesus is the bread of heaven that offers eternal satisfaction. And friends, listen. This is really important. And it's really important on multiple levels. Number one, it's really important for what he's saying. But it's also really important in helping us understand if we want to make progress against the type of sin that I just confessed to you a moment ago that I fall into, this spiritual amnesia, this is the way we're going to do it. Because we can't just look at that sin and shake our heads and go, man, I wish I wasn't that way. That can be part of it. But where it's got to go is going back to Jesus to give us faith and to help us and to change us and to help us see just how good he is. So when he says here, whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes will never thirst. He's talking about spiritual satisfaction. And there's two dimensions to it. 
There's an eternal in the sense of we come to Christ and that longing and that hole that we have that cannot be filled in by just seeking purpose for purpose sake. It can't be filled in by money. It can't ultimately be filled in by family. All the good gifts of life, even as good as they are, cannot solely satisfy us in an eternal way. Only Jesus can do that. That's what he means when he says the bread of life and you shall not hunger and you shall never thirst. So let's use that truth as somewhat of an antidote and a help to living in this area. Because we can drive around and we can, or we can drive around and say, man, what a great area. But this is nothing like heaven. Man, I've got some wonderful relationships in this church. I've got some wonderful relationships in my family. But the human element of it, that's temporal. But one day, they're going to be forever. Man, I've had some really good coffee in this town. But that's nothing like what they're going to serve at the wedding feast of the Lamb. So even these temporal things give us a glimpse to the eternal. A day when we'll never get hungry. A day when we will never go thirsty because we will be satisfied forever in the presence of Jesus. So there is a spiritual satisfaction element that happens now in the present and the spiritual satisfaction element that happens in the future. And this points us to both. Now, let's also not miss this. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life, that's one of those I am sayings that are recorded in this gospel. There's seven of them. They're absolute statements. There's one here. There's one in chapter 8. Actually, several in chapter 8, 18, so on and so forth. And Jesus is time and time and time again making the connection that the I am of the Old Testament is Jesus in the New Testament. That he is God. That he is operating as God's servant, just like we saw in this passage. He has God's seal. And friends, let's just stop and think just for a moment. Who else and what else in this world could make this kind of claim? No one. There's no one. There's nothing. Some of you, you know what I ate today. I had delicious green beans and sweet potatoes and the same dry chicken I've had for the past two years. Not complaining about that, by the way, except I am. But some of you had a wonderful meal. But guess what? If you're not already hungry, you're going to be hungry again. Some of you this week, maybe you took a trip. It was awesome. But eventually you're going to need to take another trip. Some of you, God bless you, played some golf this week. You may have had a wonderful golf round. But guess what? You're going to need to play golf again soon before too long. And what Jesus is saying here is, there is a satisfaction beyond that that only comes from him that we need to look to him for. I like what C.S. Lewis says about this in a true C.S. Lewis way. I cannot find a cup of tea which is big enough or a book that is long enough. 
And so when Jesus is offering them and offering us this kind of eternal, multifaceted, both now and later satisfaction, and he's wrapping it up and saying, look, I'm showing you, I'm offering you what only God can offer you. Friends, there should be a longing within us to say, that's what I want. That's what I need. Let me give you one more good piece of news right here about this too. The book of Isaiah, this is before Jesus had officially had come on the scene, but think about what Jesus just said and think about what Isaiah said so many thousands of years before. He said this, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come and buy and eat. Come and buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Is that almost not verbatim what Jesus just said when he said, I'm the bread of life and whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So let me say it like this. No matter what you're really after tonight, Jesus is what you're looking for. He's what you're really, really looking for. So let's enjoy the gifts, but let's worship the giver. Now, there's one more thing that we need to talk about here. Jesus makes an interesting turn here in 36 and following, <coughs> one that we will actually talk a little bit about tonight, and then we'll talk more about next week. He, he kind of weaves this together in this section. So he's telling all these people all this stuff, and they're standing there looking at him. And then he says this, but I said to you, that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So there's a lot going on there. Let me try to give it to you in a principle. Everyone that God has given to Jesus will come to him and never be lost. And those people will also be resurrected on the last day. So what he's getting at there, and he gets at it an interesting way, is the, the doctrine of election. Wayne Grudem defines it like this. He says, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any unforeseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. That's what Jesus is talking about there. And I found what Matt Carter in a commentary called Exalting Christ and John, <coughs> his own journey with that idea, I thought was really helpful. He said, this doctrine can be difficult to embrace. When I was first confronted with this teaching, I wasn't even sure I could believe it. But the more I studied God's word, 
And the more I committed myself to digging into Scripture, the more my eyes were open to the truth that God had chosen a people for himself. That was the only way I could explain passages like these. Then he has a long list, but let me just give you a few. Acts 13, 48 says this, When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Colossians 3, 12, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, For we know this, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And then this same thread here, Jesus uses it time and time again, not just here in John 6, it comes up again, but also in <coughs> excuse me, John 10 and also John 17, the way he talks about this. I, I love what, what John MacArthur says that kind of explains what is happening here. He says, The plan of God in eternity past was to redeem a segment of fallen humanity through the work of the Son and for the glory of the Son. There was a moment in eternity past when the Father desired to express his perfect and incomprehensible love for the Son. And to do this, he chose to give the Son a group of redeemed humanity as a love gift. A company of men and women whose purpose would be, throughout all the eons of eternity, to praise and glorify the Son and serve him perfectly. So that's what Jesus is saying there. And it's meant to confront these people, but also encourage those of us that hear it and to be strengthened by it. Because look back at what happens there. When, when, when he talks about the people who have been chosen, what does it say at the end of 37? Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Friends, there are some in this room that I just want to try to help you tonight. Because there are times when you feel that because you did this or thought this or maybe something happened a long time ago that God could never receive you. Friends, what does this verse say? That he has already received you and he will never cast you out. If you truly belong to Jesus Christ tonight, you cannot and will not unbelong. There is no chance that he would unfriend you. Because of something that you do. Because he, you didn't earn his friendship by something you did in the first place. He chose you. He's not going to unchoose you. That's his work. What we got to do is believe. And even he gives us the faith to believe. And for those who struggle and wonder, oh my gosh, am I, am I falling away? Friends, the Lord is keeping you. If you belong to him... He's keeping you. He will never cast you out if you have come to him. And then also beyond that, look back in that little section of text there, 36 to 40. He says this multiple times, and you'll see it again next week, that, that these people, think of it that way, call it the chosen, the elect, Christians, whatever moniker you want to put in there, they will also be raised up on the last day. So he's talking about not just eternal security and the perseverance of the saints in this human time period that we're living in, but there will be a resurrection in the future. There will be an eternity in the future. 
And the fact that he keeps bringing that up shows how important it is. So when we think about election, is it difficult? It can be. It can be. It raises some objections there. There are things that we have to think about. Well, that doesn't seem fair. And here's the way I've reconciled that to myself. Here's what's not fair. That anyone goes to heaven. That's what's not fair. Because you know what that is? It's grace. None of us deserve heaven. All of us deserve hell. But yet God in his kindness chooses and he saves and he gives Jesus and some go to heaven. But that's not fairness. That's grace. That's God's unmerited favor toward us. That's God's riches at Christ's expense. Now, the free will question. Well, we're not going to untangle that one tonight. That's complicated. That's, that's kind of not even what he's talking about here. That's an offline conversation. I'm totally willing to have it with you, and we can work through it together. We'll pool our ignorance and talk about church history and try to sort it out. But what we need to see here is the emphasis that Jesus places on this. It, it explains what's going on with these people, but then I think it also encourages what's going on with people who know Jesus, that he will never cast us out. He has been sent from the Father. He will never lose any that have been given to him, and they will be raised up on the last day. Friends, these are important truths. They're encouraging truths. They're helpful truths. They are sustaining truths in the midst of a world that has lost its mind. So let's bring all this together tonight. We covered a lot of ground and not a lot of verses. But just to recap, there are some people who only seek Jesus for his practical provision. We don't want to be those people. We want to seek Jesus for who he is and trust him for his practical provision. Next, the work that Jesus requires is to believe in him. All other works flow from that work, and they are all fueled by grace. Third, Jesus is the bread of heaven that offers eternal satisfaction. You will find it nowhere else other than Christ. And then finally, everyone that God has given to Jesus will come to him and not be lost and they will be resurrected on the last day. So I don't know what you carried in here tonight, but I guarantee you that those truths, those truths will help you with it. Maybe you're one of the ones that we talked about earlier, and you would say, you know what? I'm just trying to sort this Jesus thing out. I'm not even sure exactly what I believe, but I tell you, there's something going on in my heart tonight. If that's where you're at, Let's start that conversation tonight because the Lord could be using this passage to draw you to himself. Finally, maybe you're confronted by some of this in a good way. You've been provoked in a good way in the gospel. Let's listen to that. And then finally, maybe you've been really comforted by this. In just a moment when we pray, let's just take some time and praise the Lord for that. But let's go to him now and ask that he would write these truths on our heart and that we'd see what only he can do in response to his word. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for 
drawing us together today. We thank you for opening the eyes of our hearts to hear your truth. I pray that it would go down deep into our souls and that it would bear much fruit. That there would be a great harvest of righteousness because of your word being sown tonight. That it would happen in community group and it could happen on the way to school and it can happen around the dinner table or walking the dogs, whatever it is. Lord, we just pray that you would cause this seed to bear much fruit. That we would be shaped and changed and comforted and helped and grown by it. And we pray that you would not just do that in our lives as individuals, but you'd do that in our families. That you'd do that in this church. And that you would do all of this for your own glory. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.